I want to welcome you one more time and invite you to turn to our passage for preaching today, Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. Today we're looking at the fifth passage in our eight-part series, going through every single verse of the book of Colossians. Up to this point, Paul has prayed for uh, this church that uh, Epaphras planted, uh, and he commanded Epaphras, the, he's commended Epaphras, the church planter, to the Colossians. Paul's prayed for this church. He's continued to point this church to Christ by talking about who he is and what he's done. And Paul keeps giving this church the gospel message in these little one-sentence summaries. Each week, we've kind of looked at one one-sentence summary uh, of the gospel that Paul has given in the book. And I would say it'd be well for us to note them, even to, even to memorize them. But Paul's main idea is to tell these folks, help these folks walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And we've begun to unpack that idea that the Christian life is a long walk. And last week, uh, Paul told us not to stray from the path. And this week, we're going to see something about what it's like to walk on that path. So here now, Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23, which is God's word, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that you might be equipped for all of life. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died... To the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have, indeed, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Please pray with me. And now, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You who are our rock and our redeemer. Oh, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law and to grow in us 30, 60, and 100 fold that which is planted here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been scared by a shadow? You ever been scared by a shadow? You you remember a time, maybe uh, as a small child at night, alone in your room, a shadow on your wall, and you wondered what was making it. Was it a blanket? Was it a chair? Or was it a monster that had come out from under your bed? You know? Uh, Among all the cat videos that there are on the internet, uh, I I, I found that there are also a fair number of videos of small children in broad daylight who are scared of their shadow. Uh, and their parents thought that they would do them a favor and videotape it and, and put it on the internet. So kids who uh, the sun is shining behind them and they look down and they see their shadow and begin screaming and crying because it scares them so much. Shadows, as we know, aren't the reality. Shadows 
can't hurt you. But in the dark of night, sometimes when the shadow passes over, it can seem like it can hurt you, right? And in the Colossian church, Paul's talking a little bit about things that are a shadow. And there are at least two groups in the Colossian church that are casting shadows on the people who are following Christ. And Paul doesn't specifically name them, but clues in this passage make it clear There are mystery religions in the early uh, Roman world uh, that uh, valued visions and valued asceticism. And in another group, uh, Second Temple Judaism valued traditions that had developed over time. And Paul uses enough words to clue us into that's what's going on, casting a shadow. But the church values Christ and Christ alone. Without exciting visions and long-held traditions, Christianity in this place and in this time, had some kind of judgmental shadow being cast over it. So how about you? Do you see the shadow of others' judgment? Judgment about your faith, judgment about who you are, judgment about what you do. Do you see the shadow of judgment cast over you, and do you suffer insecurity for it? Or are you one who casts a shadow on others, always suspicious of others, just to be safe? casting shadows on them. One of the other things that happens in this church that Paul mentions is self-imposed worship and false humility that cast shadows over ourselves and over others. And these pagan mystery religions, like all religions, created in-groups and created out-groups. And they had jargon that communicated that to people. And also the religion of Second Temple Judaism created cultural markers that were almost like Boy Scout badges that also created in-groups and out-groups to let people know who's in, who's out, who's good, who's bad, who should we be suspicious of, who should we cast shadows over. These are two religions, the pagan mystery religions and Second Temple Judaism, that seem so different from one another, and yet they actually had a lot in common. And that might very well be the reason why Paul isn't specifically talking about either one, but is hinting very strongly at both in this letter. He's speaking about the root issue uh, of both problems, and he's also speaking about the one who solves both problems, that being Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head who nourishes his body. And as a result, we must treat the body, the whole body of Christ, with care. And so we're going to look at three things today regarding the body that will help us. Number one, who the body belongs to. Uh, Number two, how the body grows. And number three, what to avoid regarding the body. So who it belongs to, how it grows, and what to avoid regarding the body. So first, who the body belongs to, verses 16 through 18. Paul begins in verse 16 with his main application. Don't let anyone judge you. Don't let the mystery religions or the Jewish traditions judge you. Uh, Don't let them judge you regarding food or festivals. Don't get caught up in religious rituals and traditions that are only shadows scaring you. Why not? The answer is in verse 17. Because the substance belongs to Christ. The word body is used three times in this passage, but you'll actually only find it twice in our translation. And that's because the first time body is used in verse 17, it's actually translated in our uh, our version as substance. 
which actually is a little more artful than literal, but I do, to, but I do agree that it is a very helpful translation, right? The main point Paul communicates is that the body belongs to Christ. What exactly does that mean? It means that the weight of reality in your life is, formed in, is found and formed in relationship to Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul talks about it. He compares these two things. He compares shadows and substance. The shadows aren't real, but the substance, the body, is real, and it is vitally connected to Christ. So what is Paul pointing out as shadows? False humility, the worship of angels, those who go on about the visions they saw upon entering the sanctuary of these mystery religions. And Paul will say again in verse 23 that the shadows are self-imposed worship and false humility. And I just want to just say that this morning, Paul really, up to this point in Colossians, Paul has been pointing us to Christ. He's been praying. He's been very, in this passage today, Paul starts to meddle. He goes from preaching to meddling, right? Uh, He's going to step on some toes. He's stepping on the toes of people in the church who are judging others in this game of shadows. And that's what he does. In verse 18, he says again, don't let anyone disqualify you, right? Disqualification, it's the language of a game. There is a religious game going on and Paul is telling them to put a stop to it. Because walking with Christ is not a game. It's a reality. It's not a shadow. It's the substance. So the question is, how do we respond to these shadows? Uh, The main thing is to recognize reality and to not let anyone judge you with regard to the shadows. Stick to the reality, the reality of Christ. So for us, here's an example of how that works out. Ask yourself, do I worship Christ as God who loves me, or do I worship the things that he gives me? For example, uh, and this is a broader uh, application, in our country, freedom. Everyone in America loves freedom. I love freedom. Uh, And freedom is a very good thing. The Bible says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And it says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But aren't we sometimes tempted to worship freedom rather than worship the one who grants it or even the one who sometimes withholds it? I think sometimes we are amazed by the stories of the underground church in China uh, because they worship Jesus in spite of having very limited freedom. They worship Jesus at great cost. Now, You know, I wonder if I were in that situation, would I still worship Jesus or would I blame him? And that doesn't mean that freedom is bad. That doesn't mean that America is bad. If you walk out here and say, Tag doesn't like freedom, I'm going to call you a liar. But it's okay for us to check our hearts and say, am I worshiping God for the thing or am I worshiping God for who he is? Right? I can see two common problems with freedom that are actually false worship. One is when we conflate God and American freedom. We mix them together as if they're the same thing, right? Do we pray, God bless America, as a humble petition? Or do we order each other to bless America because America is somehow synonymous with God? 
Another problem is when we define freedom as freedom from all constraints. That is actually self-worship, right? Because no one, no one in the world actually has a freedom, uh, has freedom from all constraints whatsoever. In fact, we purposefully constrain, uh, constrain ourselves in order to have relationships. We constrain our freedom in order to do relationship. Right? You don't treat another person any way you want. Friends constrain themselves to mutual care and concern for one another. And on a a societal level, that's what the American experiment is. It's reconciling both freedom and law. So 150 years ago in America, someone wrote, Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is as of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. Ouch! Frederick Douglass was angry and was meddling with us, but he calls out something that we have to check in our hearts. Are we conflating the freedom that Christ gives us with Christ himself? Are we conflating the love of God with the love of country? Now look, I love freedom and I love America. Freedom without Christ is a shadow. We can't worship freedom, but we can worship Christ who gives us true freedom. And we can worship him for that freedom and for who he is, whether or not we find ourselves in a country that's practicing it. That's why the church flourishes in places where it's persecuted. When freedom is limited, Jesus is still worshiped. And here in the midst of a country where we're thankful for our freedom, we're careful to check our hearts and make sure that we're not conflating freedom with who God is. We're not doing a false worship of freedom instead of a true worship of Christ. Where else are you tempted to worship a shadow and, as Paul says, puff yourself up with it? He wants us to let go of the vain puffing up in our lives. You know what I'm talking about when I say this vain puffing up? I'm talking about this. There are things that people uh, swear by. Isn't that how we say it? We say, oh, I swear by, uh, what is it? Some proper way to live. Some proper way to organize. Some proper way to worship. Some proper way to parent or to shop. Have you ever been judged by someone else because you weren't doing the thing that they swear by is the most important thing? Of course, you know, again, check our own hearts. There are things that you swear by and judge others for, for not doing or for not believing them. Paul in this passage is telling us to find out what they are and let them go. Because the weight of reality in your life is found in relationship to Jesus. Now look, I recognize that right off the bat, these are two pretty hefty examples and it steps on toes. But again, it's appropriate for us to check ourselves, to check our love of freedom, to check ourselves and the things that we swear by so that we don't fall into the trap of judging others. And so also that we don't fall into the insecurity of letting others judge us 
for our worship of Christ. There's real freedom in being in relationship to Jesus, who is the substance. The substance is of Christ. The body belongs to him. But how does the body grow? Next, in verses 19 and 20, Paul shows us how the body of Christ grows. What he says is that we need to keep hold of the head. You have to stay connected to Christ. He is where the nourishment comes from. Just like a human body, the brain sends signals to the rest of the body about where the nourishment goes, to which ligaments and joints it goes to. Now, this passage isn't meant to be a scientific diagram. The Bible is not uh, you know, a science textbook. But here, this metaphor is, is really apt. It's really actually helpful. There are places where the body is held together and those places must grow. Paul uses the word that he used earlier. He says that we are knit together to Christ and our hearts must be knit together. It's again, that language of alignment, of setting your sights on the same goal, setting your hearts together in the same direction. And what he says very literally then is that when that happens, that we, that we the body of Christ, grow together with the growth of God. What we've done is that we've died. We've died to the elemental ideologies of the world. And we live to the ideology of Christ. But it's not just an ideology. It's a person. He is a person. Uh, Once I was working at, uh, I was working at a band camp. I play saxophone, uh, and at my high school band camp, uh, I was in charge of a, of a squadron of saxophonists, and to help them understand how they were connected and what they needed to do, uh, I tied their hands together uh, and had them stand in a circle so they could see how connected they were. And then I invited them to sit down and eat their lunch with their hands still tied together. It was a great moment. Uh, it was a great team builder, and I would suggest that if you ever need to, if you ever need to help some people learn how to how to build a team together, to get them in a circle and tie their hands together, and uh, have them bring a brown bag lunch and put it in front of them, uh, it's a great thing to do. You know, I could have, yeah, I know it's funny. I, I could have done a couple of different things, right? Like I could have just had them stand in a circle and hold hands, and they would have understood something about connection. But when you just hold hands, you know that you can let go. I could have tied their hands together and had them just stand there and said, you know, you're all connected in this. And then untied their hands and said, okay, well, you feel that. But to have them sit down and actually accomplish something, something that they were all going to do together, they were all going to have lunch, but each of them individually needed to eat. But for them to all be connected while they do it, that's who we are in the church. In Christ, you are no longer a mere individual. You're an individual connected to the head and connected to the rest of the body. And the body grows when we recognize our connection to Christ and our connection to one another. And uh, how how do we think about that? One is we have to recognize that we're connected in this local body to one another as we're connected to the head, but we're also connected to the other local churches that are in here. And that in some real, very real ways, we're even connected to churches in this town that call themselves Christian and yet deny the gospel. Now, I know that's going to be a hard thing to hear, but let me, let me explain it to you this way. Or even on a national level, from this standpoint, the, uh, your unbelieving friend 
who watches the news at night and sees the Westboro Baptist Church uh, picketing at a funeral. Most of the time in the evangelical church, what do we do? We hold them at arm's length. We don't even see ourselves connected to a, to a group like that uh, in any way, shape, or form. We say, they're not one of us. They're not like that. But your unbelieving friend doesn't know the difference between you as an evangelical and them as an evangelical. And so what are we going to have to do? We're going to have to stand up and make things known. Sometimes, we, sometimes we're silent when we should stand up and speak because we're thinking that we're not connected to them, so we don't have to say anything. The truth is, we need to stand up and say something, especially if there's a group claiming the name of Christ that, that is doing it wrongly. It's okay if someone says, I'm in Christ and I'm doing this. Paul says, judgment begins inside the church and let the wolves be revealed as wolves. So on the other hand, we need to be encouraged. And we need to be encouraged by what God is doing among us and what God is doing beyond us. We need to be encouraged by what Christ accomplishes inside the church and what Christ can accomplish outside of our own four walls. And to that end, I want to just talk again about uh, work life. I know I prayed for Matthew and uh, the work life program that we're doing. Uh, He's been doing a lot of work getting in touch with other local churches. We're a small body right now, and we're in the midst of growing, but that doesn't stop us from doing the work of mercy and justice. And on Saturdays this fall, uh, pulling people together who are looking for meaningful employment and teaching them what it is to have a relationship with God, self, work, and others Um, is an entryway, is an entry point for people to come and see. And Matthew's been talking to uh, some other pastors. Uh, Union Run Baptist Church is going to host us, and they're going to bring some people in. Um, And a few other churches that Matthew's been talking to uh, are going to bring this together. And we're really excited. Why? Why? Because we're connected. We're not a mere individual church, but we're connected to the churches all around us. This is not an individual walk. We're all in this together. So who would you like to see clinging to Christ with you? Who would you like to see clinging to Christ with you at Word and Table? Can I just suggest that you start by listening to them and pray for them and invite them. Invite them to basketball on Saturday. Invite them to be a part of work life. Invite them to food for thought. Invite them to worship. Forward our weekly email to them, link to a sermon. Bring them the nourishment that you've received in Christ. So the church grows connected to Christ. It's a body of believers, but what does that body need to avoid? Uh, In verses 21 and 23, commandments that are really just the teaching of men. That's what the body needs to avoid. And Paul gives us examples, all those do not do statements, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. What's the difference between all those do not do's and the do not do's of the 10 commandments? You know, a lot of people will look at a passage like this and say, I don't know, this seems like just a bunch of negativity. The the Ten Commandments begin with God uh, as and seem like as a shorthand of, of a list of just a whole bunch of things that I'm not to do. And a lot of people see Christianity as a religion that's defined by what not to do. And yet there's a real difference between what Paul is talking about here when he says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, and what the Ten Commandments are when they have a negative example. For example, uh, do not murder in the Ten Commandments. Sure, it's a do not do statement. 
But what it really means is it's the floor. It's the, it's the most negative way of, of starting at first base. Do not murder leaves you a whole lot of room for what you should do, which is love your neighbor. Do not murder is the floor. What we're to build out on is loving our neighbor, protecting their person, their physical person, protecting their property, protecting their who they are, and going on to love our neighbor. It's a commandment that doesn't begin and end in its negativity. It opens up a whole place, a whole series of examples for what we can do. And the Old Testament is full of examples uh, of living out this kind of thing. Uh, One example from the Old Testament is the parapet, basically a railing on your roof that you were required to build in the Old Testament law to keep your neighbor from falling off the roof. That's an example of love of neighbor. That's an example of building out the commandment, do not murder. It has a whole broad range of something else that you can do. Is there something in our time that we do that's similar? Yes, we build stair rails. We put stickers on hair dryers, right? We put yellow tape to point out bumps and curbs. And you can build on that context in multiple contexts. You can build on that commandment in multiple contexts. But these commandments that Paul is pointing out that we should avoid are destined to perish with use. There's no building out on these. They are mere asceticism, merely harshly treating your body with rules so that the only thing that's actually built up is your own ego and your own self-righteousness toward other people. They have an appearance of wisdom, but they're not really wise. And we need to take an inventory of those things, your own personal bylaws. What are the mottos, rules, and creeds that you live by that inadvertently cause you to judge others and build up your own self-ego rather than the commandments that bring life? Now, I'm going to risk again stepping on some toes because in this passage, Paul risks stepping on toes in the church. And we usually in church try to avoid this but we should probably be a little more comfortable stepping on each other's toes in the body of Christ. And I'll tell you that next week, uh, the passage that Paul goes on from here is, is a lot more uplifting, a little less meddling. But I think it's okay for us to meddle here today. You've, you've, you've been with us this long, right? Uh, I've seen a few articles this week about what is known as the Billy Graham rule. Billy Graham had a rule that he would never be alone behind a closed door with a woman who was not his wife. And some people that I've seen on the internet have been complaining that this rule actually demeans women rather than building them up. And on the one hand, I see where the complaint comes from. Are our relationships, men and women, so fragile that a man and a woman cannot be trusted to be alone in a room for even five minutes? And truly, there can be a false humility that comes from keeping this rule. Because you might say, where does it end? Where are there, uh, you know, there are whole cultures that uh, have similar rules that to protect women have ended up with women being clad head to toe in nothing but black cloth with nothing visible but their eyes. Now, on the other hand, Billy Graham was fighting a very fierce battle in his preaching. His crusades drew hundreds, and then they drew thousands. And he met with Martin Luther King Jr., and he discussed the civil rights movement and how their ministries might affect each other. And the quickest way for Billy Graham to get discredited when he preached, would have been for him to be embroiled in accusations of misconduct. And so he made a rule to help ensure that that could not happen. Now, fast forward to today. Some men who want to seem as wise as Billy Graham won't even stand in the same room with a woman for any amount of time. What do we miss? 
Billy Graham made his rule focused on the message of Christ. And his rule didn't give him integrity. Christ gave him integrity. Some use this rule focused on themselves, thinking that keeping it, that the rule itself will give them integrity, forgetting that Christ has granted us integrity and we live out of that. Billy Graham, uh, his rule doesn't stop the indulgence of the flesh. The Bible says he who looks on a woman with lust in his eyes has already committed adultery with her in her heart, in his heart. The Billy Graham rule will not stop that. But Christ gives us a new set of eyes. Christ calls us to repentance. Christ empowers us to walk differently. Now, again, I'm not trashing the Billy Graham rule. Uh, There are other rules like it, right? There are rules about how Christians should dress, how they should speak, the kind of people they should keep at arm's length. And these rules create a culture like the Jews in Paul's day. And the mystery religions created cultures around themselves, but they also created in-groups and out-groups, those who are worthy and unworthy. What are those rules doing for you? Are they moving you toward your neighbor or away from them? Are you trying to get these rules to give you something that actually only Christ can give? Paul is stepping on toes, but not because he's mean. He's stepping on toes because he doesn't want us to miss the reality of Christ, the one who gives us all his love, all his righteousness, and all his integrity. And I don't want you to miss that either. The Valley of Vision is a modern collection of old Puritan prayers. It contains some real gems. Uh, And one of them is titled Self-Knowledge. And as we close this morning, I'd like us to consider uh, part of this prayer of self-knowledge as we wrap up. It begins, Searcher of hearts, it's a good day to me when thou givest me a glimpse of myself. Sin is my greatest evil, but thou art my greatest good. Let me not take other men as my example and think that I am good because I'm like them. For all good men are not so good as thou desires, are not always consistent, do not always follow holiness, do not feel eternal good in sore affliction. Show me how to know when a thing is evil that I think is right and good. How to know when what is lawful actually comes from an evil principle, such as desire for reputation or wealth by usury. Give me grace and let me not lay my pipe too short of the fountain, never touching the eternal spring, never drawing down water from above. Hold fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished, the body that belongs to Christ. Christ is where we find the substance of faith, not in ourselves. The body that grows in union with Christ, all its many members knit together in Him. The body that avoids self-imposed worship and false humility, that avoids the unqualified judgment of others and avoids judging others. And this prayer says, do not lay your pipe too short of the fountain, never touching the eternal spring, never drawing down water from above. Connected to each other, we must all be connected to the head, Christ, whose grace waters us, washes away our sins, and empowers our living by his Holy Spirit. We died with him, and so we can no longer live according to the elemental patterns and ideologies of this world. Rather than self-imposed worship and false humility, we worship Christ, the risen King, connected to Him in true humility. Connect your pipe to Christ. 
the eternal spring, and draw down water from above, His marvelous grace and love toward you. Let's pray. O Lord, show us the substance of faith. Show us you in reality, that we would humbly live as people connected to you, nourished by your love and mercy. Grow us in this and help us to avoid improper judgment, all for your love's sake. Amen.